You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome yet again to Grace Community Church. So glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. And as we... Um, Come to the Word. We're spending, going to spend some serious time in Colossians 3. I want to be praying for Josh and Arlene Tate. They are taking off just right about now. Uh, could be taking off right at this minute, heading to the Philippines, where they are going to encourage some pastors who are surrounded by ISIS. I don't know how aware you are of what's going on in the Philippines, but ISIS is in many places in the Middle East being driven out. Now they're trying to form another beachhead in, in the Philippines, and Josh and Arlene are flying right into the middle of that. Now, the Lord has protected that particular area, Davao City, but there are a lot of people or a lot of uh, rebels around it, a lot who want to bring especially Christians harm. And Josh will be meeting with several pastors, a couple that are already in the city, one that's not too far out, a couple that are a pretty good ways out. So told him this morning, or yesterday actually, yesterday evening, talked to Josh on the phone and told him we'd be praying for him. And he is taking our love, sending our love, our greetings, uh, our encouragement, our prayers to them. So uh, we certainly want to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted. And they certainly are where Josh and Arlene are going. So pray for their safety. Pray for uh, the pastors. Pray for the meeting. And just pray that the word will go forth in that place. One of the pastors has begun uh, seeing some Muslim students come to their children's ministries. So uh, that's a, an exciting thing, but it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, tense time there. So we want to be praying for them. In fact, let me just uh, do that right now if that's okay. Father, uh, we thank you for Josh and Arlene as they head to the land of her birth and a, a, a place that Josh loves very deeply. I pray that you would uh, give them safety as they travel, that they would have no troubles getting into the country, that you would take care of them for the, for the few weeks that they're there. I pray that they will have enormous ministry. And indeed, Lord, uh, may our love as a, as a church here in North Carolina go with them. We pray for our brothers and sisters in this land where uh, many Christians are being called to make the ultimate sacrifice. I, I just pray that your, your protection, your hand of protection will continue to be on many of the believers in the land in, in, in the supernatural, miraculous ways that you have done so far. So uh, bring this to our minds many times, especially these next few weeks, uh, as we remember our brother and sister, Josh and Arlene in the Philippines, in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, I uh, want to just mention uh, Wednesday night, we have our day of prayer and fasting uh, here at the church, and just encourage all of you to, that, who will be able to, to fast from after dinner on Tuesday until we eat dinner on Wednesday. If you would do that, that's a 24-hour fast. It's only two meals, though, that you're missing. It'll feel like a lot more about 3 o'clock uh, Wednesday afternoon. But we're going to be praying about really the topic that we're talking about this morning, spiritual growth and God's 
power to overcome sin in our lives. We want to be praying about that. And fasting and praying is a wonderful way to address the issues that uh, we have to deal with on a daily basis, especially in our modern world. So be here Wednesday at 6.30 after you've fasted. We're going to have uh, a meeting together. We'll spend a little time in the Word and in prayer. And then we have a couple of meetings that night, different ones, uh, groups that will be meeting. And then also I just want to say real quickly, those of you who have been coming and you're wanting to know more about Grace, our, our Grace Connection class starts the Sunday after Labor Day uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning. So just want to encourage you to hang on at least till then. You can get a real good feel for who we are, what we believe. Elder rules different for some. And so we'll talk all about that, talk about our doctrines, why we function the way that we do, all of those things. Well, thanks, uh, worship team, for leading us this morning. What, what a beautiful song that is, you know, that, uh, what a beautiful name it is. Um, I, I appreciate so much more the theology of many of the Hillsong songs than I do the preaching that often comes out of there. It's problematic if you ever hear Brian Houston preach. I've heard him preach live twice, and I just wouldn't recommend it. Um, so, uh, but, the, but some of the, the theology and some of the words are beautiful, the words of the songs. And David, and David has... Uh, tweaked it a little bit to make it even more theologically precise and appreciate that very much. There's a, a, a classic line at the end of uh, Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, I think that resonates with a whole lot of us. A couple of the main characters in the book, Jake and Brett, uh, have this relationship that is an on and off relationship. It's set in 1920s Paris, number of, uh, of, of British and American expatriates head to Paris and they spend the summer in Paris and they go to uh, Spain for the running of the bulls at Pamplona and just follows their lives and, 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 and the promiscuous lifestyle that they all celebrate just leaves them jealous and empty and bitter. And, and like I say, Jake and Brett, his, his, his girlfriend, are off and on through the whole whole thing and then at the very end of the of, of of the book they're in a taxi together and Brett says oh Jake we could have had such a good time together and he responded with the last words of the novel saying yes isn't it pretty to think so now I'm I'm not recommending that you read that book look read Old Man in the Sea if you want to read uh, Hemingway uh, even so, many will resonate with that cynical response of one who had hoped for so much more in life than life was able to produce and to, and, and to deliver. Life without Christ always disappoints. In Christ, however, life is always good, right? I mean, because of our union with Christ, we're always in control of our own passions. We don't face the self-recrimination and disillusionment that unbelievers are forced to confess and admit when life is beyond our control we just trust the one who set the stars in place is that how it goes or is it so that when you are told that you have the power to live beyond the sinful self that you used to be and beyond circumstances much to your surprise you find that it's just not 
your reality somehow is just not working for you. Are you tempted to say with unbelieving Jake, yes, isn't it pretty to think so? Isn't it pretty to think I, I will be able to control my, my need for control or to overcome my anger or lust or my laziness and bitterness? Does the blessing of union with Christ truly break the power of sin in the life of the believer? If it does, if indeed our union with Christ breaks that power, as Romans 6 promises, Colossians 3, and so many places in Scripture promise, if that is so, does a struggle with sin indicate the absence of union with Christ in, in a person's life? If he or she continues to struggle? If there has been a pattern of failure in a believer's life or a professing believer's life, what hope is there for behavioral change that will glorify the Lord? Well, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 uh, speaks a great deal, uh, as you understand it, in the wider context of Scripture. It addresses all of these questions, though no, maybe not quite as directly as we would desire. Since we have three weeks to examine these 17 verses in Colossians, perhaps we can move in the direction that, that, that takes us beyond failure and cynicism and yes, isn't it pretty to think so, kind of an approach to the Christian life. Today's text, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, is, is squeezed right in the middle of the larger 17 verses that we're considering over these three weeks. And after the scripture is read, I'll read the text. Um, excuse me, I'll read the text when the scripture is read. I'll work through the text, defining the terms and considering what exactly it is that Paul is trying to communicate to his readers and then see what application there is for us. So we're going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 17, although our focus is on verses 5 through 11. It is our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you would please stand. And hear the word of the Lord from Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, remember since then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, by the way, just this is a good time for me to just tell you quickly. Barbarians are what you think. They're really not as much about behavior as it is a race of people. But Scythians, these guys uh, who lived way up north, 
were really, really <coughs> wild. Uh, and, you know, barbarians would say, uh, have you heard about the Scythians? My goodness, those guys are crazy. So Paul is saying, read it again. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be faithful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, desire with all of our hearts to live for you in such a way to give glory and to bring glory to God. And Father, we confess that we desire to live very much for ourselves. And this dichotomy inside of us sometimes almost drives us crazy. So we pray that today, that you might help align the reality of union with Christ to the ways that we live. We pray that you would do it through the power of your word, the power of the name Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, BC. There's not a whole lot that will get your attention like someone saying, today we're going to talk about sex. Why? I mean, why is it that when someone says that, everybody, look, we're, we're, we're sexual beings. God made us in a particular way. Physical in intimacy within a biblically ordained marriage of a man and a woman is one of God's absolute finest gifts to his children. <coughs> Conversely, sexual relations... And attention outside of such relationships can create some of the most negative consequences we will ever have to endure in this life. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We're not exactly fully sure what he's saying. You can make some stabs and say, okay, he means this, this, and this. But one thing we do know that he's saying that sex, sexual sins are sort of in a category all of their own. So is sexual sin worse than murder? Well, of course not. But I don't anticipate too many of you being guilty of murder in this life. We're all prone to sexual sins in one way or another. Some more so than they're even aware. And if you think, well not me, then consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, 
lest he fall. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul begins by saying, tame the tendency within you toward sexual immorality. Is that what he says? Does he say cage it? No, he says put it to death. Put to death the impulses that belong to the fleshly nature. In other words, don't mess around with this list that I'm about to give you. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. That's no surprise to a lot of you. What is surprising is that it, 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 it indicates a physical relationship, any physical sexual activity outside of marriage. It's not just the mind. That comes later in this list. Um, we're going to be thinking over the next few months about God's design for marriage and family and covenant community uh, off and on. But for now... Just think about how odd this command was to put sexual immorality to death in the first century. Uh, I don't hear people say it too much anymore because I guess people just have become aware of what life really was like back in the day when people say, oh, things are worse than they've ever been. Well, they were pretty bad in the first century. Uh, morality was almost non-existent. And, and to... to, to Hold on to this sexual ethic of Christians in that day was quite odd. It wasn't so odd for Jews. Jews were just odd to begin with. But now you've got this group of people that consist of Jews and Gentiles. And they hold to this very strict way about the ways that they interact with one another physically. So I would think that we would all agree that it is becoming increasingly strange in our day to hold to this strong moral ethic uh, that is prescribed in the Bible. But in response to those who say that we cling to an antiquated moral standard, I can assure you that this command seemed just as strange in the first century as it does today. Now for years, the church had quite an impact, especially in Western society, and so people did hold more to a, a, a Christian ethic about activity, sexual activity. It's not that people didn't and were not involved in adultery and premarital sexual relations, those types of things. But everybody knew it was wrong. And sometimes you would lose your job if you got caught. It, there were great consequences. Society as a whole said, no, we don't affirm this behavior as normal. Now they look at us and say, we don't affirm this behavior as normal. We don't affirm these beliefs as normal. But again, it was strange then. John the Baptist lost his head for speaking against an illicit marriage that was surely as much about illicit sex as it was just divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> Not long ago, Christians were in a different place, but now... We're in this culture in which people very much look at us and say, that is strange. I will remind you of what you already know. It will not be easy in the coming, coming years to take your stand on biblical truth for sexual ethic. The list that follows the command uh, against sexual immorality supports the initial uh, forbidden activity, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness are almost certainly mentioned in the same vein. 
Did you notice in a little bit later in Colossians, and I'm sure I'll point this out again next week. He says, above all this, put on love to where everything is held together uh, in love, in balance, in, in, in love. Oftentimes, uh, the Apostle Paul in particular will say something like, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and fr flowing from love is joy, peace, goodness, long-suffering, that kind of thing. Um, which, by the way, is why it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. doesn't matter if you say fruits of the Spirit. I'll laugh at you. No, I won't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I made so many of those kinds of things myself, and it really, it's... The point is the same. But here he's saying same thing. Put to death sexual immorality and all the things that flow from that. Uh, they deal, all of these uh, behaviors and, and thoughts and actions deal with, with thoughts and actions that don't quite rise to the level of porneia. Certainly pornography would fit in this list as would thoughts that continually move toward the immoral, coarse joking, um, and that is hit a little bit later as well. Just constantly thinking and talking about sex. It, it's difficult, not only because of the culture, but because of the way we're wired. Again, Satan perverted. One of the very first things Satan did was to make Adam and Eve aware of their nakedness. Well, we could say that God made them aware of it. But all of a sudden, they sin and they're aware that they're naked and they need to cover up. This beautiful gift that God has given us has been perverted. The next time you go to a children's movie, it's an animated or, or a live action movie, uh, when you're sitting there with all of these children, with, you're there with your children or grandchildren, just, just notice the, the laugh lines that are the largest. You know, a man gets hit in a certain place or a woman shakes a particular part of her body and the place just erupts. And I always think, Oh, this is awful. This is awful. And the parents are screaming right along with the kids. We're, we're, we're already slanted in a direction and we constantly confirm it over and over and over. When a story comes on TV about sex, if it's a news and it's about sex, everybody will like, turn the TV up, you know, be quiet, let's hear this. We just are wired that way. And again, maybe because sex is such a beautiful gift from God, that Satan has perverted it. What are we to do with our sinful inclinations? Put them to death, Paul says. Why? Because wrath is coming against those who pervert God's ways and who make an idol of that which is the height of purity in God's design for us. I want to move quickly through the rest of the passage so that we can uh, get to the application. Verse 7. In these... You too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And he goes into another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's highly unlikely that Paul would have included either of these lists. Um, that he does here and in several other New Testament books. If his readers weren't struggling with these or we're not going to struggle with these areas. The point is, this is how you live before Jesus saved you. Quit living like that. Why are you still living that way? Put these things to death. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. I just did that one. I'm sorry. 
uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. John Woodhouse, in his commentary on Colossians, does a really great job explaining all of these terms. Anger comes from the Greek word, which is translated wrath earlier, as in the wrath of God is coming. Really, English translators could have put these backwards. It would have been more appropriate to put wrath first and anger second, corresponding to the, to the Greek words that are written there. Believers just don't have the right to be angry with whomever they want. When the wrath of God comes on mankind, what does it do? It's coming in judgment. Essentially what he's saying is, don't let judgment just fly out of your mouth. Gosh, I don't even know why I'm talking about this. Nobody here struggles with that. We're called to be gentle. We're called to be holy. Malice is speech that expresses ill will toward others. Perhaps you said something about President Trump or Hillary Clinton recently that would rise to this level. Slander is speech with the intent of damaging another's reputation. May be true, may not be true. Not everything that's true needs to be said, right? Obscene talk is disgraceful speech that is often a result of anger. anger. Look, there is enough vitriol coming out of Washington and around the country. We don't need to add to that. It is just as odd to the world when our speech is used to build up instead of tear down as it is to have this strict sexual ethic. You belong to Jesus before you belong to a political party or a group that seeks to, seeks to bring change in the environment or to lower taxes or whatever. Watch your speech. Represent Jesus with what you say. Exercising that privilege, the privilege that is ours, to build up rather than to tear down will almost certainly present great opportunities for us to share the beautiful gospel of, of Jesus for those who have no hope beyond making this life a little bit better for themselves and for others while they're here. No wonder people get so excited and energized and, 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 and angry about things because this is all there is. Even if they say they believe in an afterlife, they live as though this is all there is. When we have the hope of eternity, we're able to help others have a better life here and also prepare for eternity. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Going to talk about honesty a little bit more in just a few moments, but, but think how important it is as it relates to our holiness. We have put off the old and put on the new clothes. We're being transformed from a creature of, of the culture into the image of God. Right now, many of us have lives that really are far more in tune with the culture than we are, than, than they are in tune with the, 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 the Christian life that is being transformed into the image of Christ. And, 
and brings glory to God because we are reflecting his image in the ways that we live. Perhaps that's why Paul says what he does in verse 11 as he is transitioning to talk about body life in verses 12 to 7, which we'll do next week. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, if you were paying attention as you were going through, you would think that this verse belongs to the next section. It truly is a segue, but almost all scholars put it with the section before. When he's saying, don't be given over to sexual immorality, watch your mouth, don't lie to one another. All of these things, that he's, because he's saying, here there is not Greek and Jew. Look, you're not who you were before you knew Christ. Is it not true that often we are shaped by the expectations of those who belong to our race or our class, our social group? I mean, we get our street cred and bona fides by living and joking and speaking the same way that, that, that our group does. But Paul says your primary identity is in Jesus. You're still a slave or a slave owner, he said. I'm glad none of you are either. A Greek or a Jew, barbarian, Scythian. Quite a few that might rise to that Scythian. No, I'm just not, not here at the church down the road. <clears throat> but you are first and foremost in union with Christ. You're no longer slaves or slave owners, but you are employers and employees. If you belong to Jesus, you are not united with him and he is all and in all. So, with this brief exposition of our verse, let's think about our lives as believers in light of the commands given to God's people in the text. Beginning with the cognitive dissonance of our union with Christ and who we are in real life can be maddening. That's not something you... you you just you say, okay, I'm going to do that. You're just like, mm-hmm, that's, that's the truth. Believing one way, behaving another way, creates cognitive dissonance or psychological discomfort. In other words, it's like, okay, I believe this, but I live in that way. Something's got to give. Most of us cannot exist in that place for a long time, although quite a few today seem to be giving it a go. Either we will change our behavior to bring it into line with our beliefs or we will change our beliefs to accommodate our behavior. Look, the stuff that we accept as okay today, we wouldn't have been caught dead accepting 30, 40 years ago for those of you who were living 30, 40 years ago. Something has to change. It can be Difficult for believers, though, because although we are in Christ, Adam continues to live in us and make his presence known on a regular basis. Although our union is with Christ, we still have the sinful nature to contend with in a fallen world of temptation, full of temptation. Like Paul in Romans 7, we find ourselves unable to do the things that we desire. Even worse, the sinful things we hate. Deep down are the very things we find ourselves doing. No wonder Paul said at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I read years ago 
that where Paul grew up in Tarsus, um, there was a, 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 a practice that when you were caught red-handed with a murder, so many times murders were, were as they are today, acts of passion. I mean, they're just fits of passion and, and anger with someone that you know and love. And how many times do people murder someone because they just can't take it anymore and then are horrified that they have done that thing? Well, in that day, instead of taking you out and executing you, what they would do is to tie that body around your back and you had to carry that dead body everywhere you went. Just imagine that. I mean, in addition to the physical strain, there's this emotional trauma of what have I done? What have I done? And Paul is like saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? Get him off, get him off. When you read lists like the ones that we've read in Colossians 3, if you struggle with these types of sins, you may wonder if you indeed are a Christian, especially with the things that you so often hear. <clears throat> Soren Kierkegaard, David's main man, once said, As you have lived, so have you believed. As you have lived, so have you believed. What are you to think if you struggle with sexual sins, which can be, as we've already acknowledged, debilitating to individuals, to marriages, families, companies, churches, and can drive professing Christians nearly mad? Is there hope? Well, yes. Consider the words right after Paul said in Romans 7, 24 and verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That may seem a little comfort to some of you. Say so, okay I just have to live with this dichotomy. No, no we become more and more like Christ. But it's the first part of the process is understanding that we've got two entities living in us. The old man, the new man. The old self, the new self. And. And Adam and Jesus, and there's going to be a battle. And we've got to find ways to tilt the battle toward Christ. Is it him doing it in us, or is it us making decisions? Yes, it's that. That's what it is. So, the next four points of application relate to all sin, but particularly to overcoming temptations toward sexual sin. The second point is this. Honesty before the Lord and the body of Christ is, cru is a crucial ingredient in the sanctification process. Do not lie to one another, Paul says. Lying is it's one of the very first sins that we consciously commit as children, right? Anybody have kids that don't lie or that haven't lied, you know, somewhere along the way? We're good at lying. Unless, of course, you're OCD about telling the truth. I mean, I used to struggle with this. This doesn't mean that I'm not a liar. I am a liar. I, I have, we have to struggle with this all the time. But, you know, when you say, what time is it? I couldn't tell you it's quarter to four. I'd have to say it's 3, 3.43. You know, I mean, I just, that's just the way it was back in the day. It's not that way anymore. But I'll just say quarter to four. But we find ways. Even if we're OCD, we find ways to present the best about us. And to hide 
the bed. Look, there's wisdom in not putting all your dirty laundry out there for the world to see. And whenever possible, when a person sins and it's confronted and there's confession and repentance, that, that circle of confession and repentance ought to be kept as small as possible. It's not that we want to bring it out. There are certain occasions where we do bring it out. Uh, certainly under church discipline. If an elder sins, the scripture says, you know, just it's got to be out there. So, um, but, but for the most part, we want to keep it as small as possible. But it's nearly impossible to overcome a tendency toward immorality or an addiction to pornography on your own. Look, I'm not a fan <clears throat> of... Organized accountability groups, forced accountability, or where we say, okay, we're going to get these five groups of guys together, and you be honest and bear your souls to one another. But I am very much a fan of individual or small group accountability with people you trust. In fact, <clears throat> again, especially for young men, I imagine it's almost impossible to remain pure without help from others. Pornography is so readily available. And once again, don't think, oh, it's, we don't struggle in the same ways that we used to. I, I was looking at an article this morning about how uh, millennials don't commit adultery near as much as uh, the baby boomers did. Millennials don't get married until they're like 30 years old, you know. But I imagine there's some sexual immorality going on before that. And pornography is out there for everybody. And unfortunately, I see it over and over in, in, in the covenant promises I follow, or covenant eyes I Follow that Twitter feed and it's saying over and over, women are coming into struggles with this. That doesn't compute in my mind, but they're coming into struggles with this in the same way that guys are. Look, temptation may be tempered with age, but it doesn't go away. Furthermore, while we struggle in different ways, women can be just as guilty of these sins as men without realizing it. It may be not as out there and... Maybe it doesn't have the same consequences. But look, if you're watching Netflix and you're thrilled when an unmarried couple finally consummates their relationship with one another physically, then you're indulging in the sins that are listed in Colossians 3. We know that there is hope in the Lord, but what word is there for us when we have tried so hard and we fail? Well, that's the focus of the next point. Three, sins of the flesh must be put to death, not put away. Read about a little boy who was <clears throat> in the pantry with the cookie jar open. And his mom said, Nathan, where are you and what are you doing? He said, I'm in the pantry resisting temptation. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think there are a lot of us resisting temptation when it should have never come to that point. We're in the pantry fighting temptation when we should have kept the door closed. And if it had been open, we certainly should have stayed away from the cookie jar. So what are you doing to, prevent, to, to, to protect yourself from temptation? I mean, look, I could give all kinds of examples of things that you could do, boundaries you could set up. But the, Holy, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You don't need me to. Just, again... The reason you need an accountability partner is because it's hard to be honest with yourself about these kind of things. So you need someone to be honest. Look, young married men, if you struggle with pornography, you need to talk to somebody about this. Ideally, it's good for your wife to be 
you're one of your accountability partners, but you certainly need a guy to be an accountability partner too. And if your wife can't handle it, then with her understanding and knowledge, let it be someone else. Wives, if you have just discovered that your husband struggles with that, let me tell you, you are not alone. Maybe a lot don't know it, that there is as great a struggle as it is, but all the time people come to me and they say, i got to talk about something. And I'll say, so how long have you been struggling with pornography? And it's, it's like, how did you know? What I, I was like, it's just, it, it's a struggle. And you've got to be, and your accountability partner needs to be someone who's going to help you, not someone who's going to say, yeah, well, I know what you mean. I struggle too, but thank the Lord for his forgiveness. And that's true. <clears throat> but we need to help each other overcome these sins. A whole lot is at stake. In our text, Paul said that believers are to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Actually, he didn't say it that way. He didn't say it as a command. Put off the old, put on the new. Now, he does say put on in the next text that we'll be reading. But he used the aorist tense in the verb, which means an action completed in the past. And it's just kind of like it's, it's an action that occurred at some time. So he, in reality, he was saying you should behave as believers because sometime in the past you put off that old man and you put on the new man. Now, the old man tacks along if, to carry the analogy out. But again, his point is your position is in Christ. That should spur you to action. I thought it was really interesting. This past week I was reading in the book of Acts and never really thought about this before, but when Paul talks to the people about the ship, you know, they're taking the ship to Rome and he said, and it's this horrible storm. And he says, God has revealed to me that everybody on this ship is going to be saved. We're not going to lose one person in this awful storm. Then later, the sailors are trying to sneak away. They're trying to get in the boat and sneak away. And Paul goes to the centurion who says, you know what, if these guys do that, then all bets are off. What I told you earlier is not going to happen. The sovereignty of God, his power in our lives and our actions. It all goes together. It's a beautiful picture that, again, I, I, I'd never seen before. Um, so I, one of the things, that, even though this is true, this is a constant we need to put off and put on. When Allison and I travel, as we've just returned from Australia, I mean, we resemble some form of a modern-day version of the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, look, am I kidding? We're dragging these humongous suitcases and backpacks and stuff, you know, we're walking with stuff on our head. feels like it. We're, we're, we're going everywhere because we want to have enough clothes to wear. You know, this time we were hardly anywhere long enough to, um, to wash clothes. So we had to have clothes for three and a half weeks. And one of our, our friends says, look, packing like an American is one thing. It's another thing to bring the house. And I'd say, you know, he had a point. Uh, look, whenever we arrive home from a trip like that, everything gets washed, whether we've used it or not. Everything goes in the washing machine. You know what Paul is saying? Don't wash those clothes. Don't take them to the dry cleaners. Burn them. You cannot play with the old man any more than you can play with a snake. He will get you 
sooner or later. Quit putting yourself, quit putting yourself in the path of temptation. Next, repentance and forgiveness are beautiful gifts from God. In the list that Paul gives to the Colossians and in several other books, it's apparent that he's saying, in essence, quit dabbling in those sins. That's the way you were before Christ. God, and, and, and you need to know God's wrath is coming upon those whose lives are characterized by these sins. Do not live this way. You don't have to live this way. We know this, theoretically. But again, it's what makes us so miserable when we know that we have power to overcome sin and we don't know how to exercise it. How can we handle this? Well, again, God has given us the beautiful gifts of repentance and forgiveness. Not specifically in this text, but it is in all of Scripture, all of the New Testament. This is how you deal with it. Be honest about your sin and repent every single time. It's like, oh, God, I don't, you never come and say, Lord, well, hey, nobody's perfect. Uh, I guess I messed up again. Thank you for forgiving. Just, it's like, Lord, forgive me. I don't ever want to do that again in my life. Acts 11, 18 and 2 Timothy 2, 25 both indicate that repentance is a gift that God grants to us. Indeed, his forgiveness offered time and time again will deliver us from the death trap of these sins. Believe God when he says these things and work hard at avoiding unnecessary temptation. Rankin Wilburn has written an outstanding book on the topic of the believer's union with Christ. Timothy Keller's endorsement of this book and my son's endorsement sold me. I'm so glad that I purchased it. Uh, there are in Wilburn's book so many simple yet profound analogies that help us understand the concept of our union with Christ. Here's what he said about God's forgiveness when we sin. Quote, the work of Christ sets you free from sin's penalty. So rather than turning away from God, you can turn toward Christ precisely when you might be tempted to hide from Him. You can boldly approach His throne with confidence because you remember you were completely covered by Christ's righteousness. Only those who believe can obey. Now, to be fair, he turns it around later and says only those who obey can believe. It all just sort of works together. Only those who believe can obey. Our understanding, do you begin to see how our, an understanding of our union with Christ can move us toward freedom from sin? One last point. More of Jesus, less of me is God's formula for holiness in our lives. Nature abhors a vacuum. The hatred that we seem to have for the position of the people who don't agree with us in this land today is by and large a result of the vacuum of relativity. Oh, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. It's, uh, we'll all just do our own thing. Nature can't stand that. There is a right and wrong. Now, we disagree about what is right and wrong. But look, when you put off the old man, if you don't immediately put on the new man, you're in trouble. He's going to be scratching and saying, let's go, baby. Ain't nothing happening here. Let's get something going. The only possible way 
that there is going to be less of me when there is, an, is, when there is that immediate decision to be more of Jesus. So how do we do that? By spending time in the word, in prayer, by interaction with the body, which is a huge part of our victory, interaction with the body of Christ. Do not be too busy to spend time with Jesus. You are united with him and your only hope for holiness is in that union, not in your efforts to do better, although that's a part of it. It's your union with Christ that is your, that is your hope for holiness. Sit at his feet. Admire his beauty. Worship the one who took your sins so that you might be made righteous. He will perfect the holiness that has already been introduced into your life. It is a promise. Believe it and act upon it. Let's pray. On the last Sunday of the month, we take an offering for... Uh, Benevolence. This is in addition to our regular offering. We only do this once a month. If this is your first time, we don't take two offerings every Sunday. But on the last Sunday, we express our love for what God has done for us by giving to a special fund that will meet needs of those both inside the body and outside of the body that come upon them rather suddenly and unexpectedly. It's our way that we share the love of so we'll be doing that as we sing. Father, in the words of John Newton, when his mind was almost gone at the end of his life, he said, I don't remember much, but there are two things that I do remember. One, I'm a great sinner. Two, I have a great Savior. No wonder. He wrote those beautiful words that have blessed so many. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. He saved a wretch like me. Father, as believers, we behave in ways that do not line up with our beliefs. Every day we do at one level or another. Some of those sins with which we struggle bring great distress in our hearts, our lives, our relationships. We long to be holy like Jesus. And as we sit at his feet and worship him, change us into the image. Conform us to the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.